Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we continue to seek you by faith, expressing the longings of our hearts, we, like the Apostle Peter, long for you because there is no one else. Where else can we go? You only have the words of life. So the prayer of our hearts this morning is that we would know your presence, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you in faith, according to your promise. Father, would you cleanse our hearts from all unrighteousness? We are sinful in so many ways and feel painfully feel our imperfections. We disobey those things. We know that we ought not to do. Do those things that we know we should not do. And yet you continue to call us back, calling us to repent, calling us to believe, calling us to receive the full and free forgiveness that comes at great cost to your Son, our Savior. We ask today that that powerful blood would continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How we thank you for the full forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that you are the God who removes the guilt and the shame. Thank you that you are the one who has borne the penalty in full. And you have left nothing to us. We ask, Father, as we open the word, that your spirit would be our true instructor. These things are spiritually discerned, and it's not a matter of exercising our minds, our intellect, but it is dependent upon your divine instruction. And so we ask that you would instruct our hearts in what we should know, in what we should believe, in what we should repent of, in what we should consecrate ourselves to. Spirit of God, would you please do all your holy will in us and then through us. We ask that on this day you would give encouragement to those who are weakened by uh, the, the difficulties of life, some who are suffering physically, and oh, how we pray that you would show mercy to these individuals, to their households who who feel such great grief on their hearts today. There are some, Lord, who have so much uncertainty as to the future and what it will hold for them. Would you give them that confident assurance today that you are the God who goes before them, the God who has planned all things from eternity past, the God who never lets his people go, the God who even sanctifies suffering for eternally good purposes. Encourage their hearts on this day. Uh, that their faith would not falter. We pray for those who seek your will concerning job situations that are challenging at the moment, some even contemplating career changes because of the recent events that they have experienced, and we pray that you would lead them for your namesake. Some who feel the great overwhelming fear of a culture that continues to spiral downward, circumstances and movements culturally right now that are so far beyond our capacity to understand, let alone to control or to manage, and it leaves many fearful. Would you come alongside those today and speak your words of peace into their hearts? Would you assure them that you are the shepherd who leads for your name's sake, that even our suffering has a a sanctified purpose in it, and though this world rages against you, you are the God who sits firmly seated upon his throne and laughs at those who devise plans uh, against you. Oh God, how we need you. And we pray that you would come with all of your sanctifying, blessing, strengthening, awakening power on this day. Change us, Lord God. Change us that we may be made conformable to your Son. Change us that we may be the children that you have have purchased at great cost. Do all your work. Do all your will in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5 as we continue our series? For several years now, we've heard the term tribalism. Have you heard that? 
It's often associated with political views or social causes. Author Mark Brolin published an article two years ago in which he says, we humans seem to have a basic need to define teams and camps and belong to one of them. Throughout the history of the world, elaborate hero versus villain narratives have regularly been spun to glorify one political camp and demonize another. And it continues to this day, doesn't it? And now with the platforms that social media provides, the tribalism seems to rage at a fever pitch and defining the issues and enemies and canceling the guilty opposition and promoting its own ideas and causes. It creates quite a loud cacophony in our culture. But I was thinking in the context of 1 Thessalonians 5 specifically how God has a very different platform for his message You know, he could have invented social media a long time ago. The technology that we think of as cutting edge is foolishness in God's sight. His wisdom and brilliance far exceeds the most creative minds of entrepreneurs and developers in our own day and age. But he has not chosen to use technology as the primary means for communicating his truth in this world we live in. He's actually chosen that ordinary people like you and me would be messengers of this good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And he has designed that we not only be messengers of it, but that we live it out in our own context that he calls the church. It's a family that God has put together, if you will. It's, it's not a tribe, but rather a family uh, that in some ways is most remarkable and unusual because it is comprised of people who find their identity, not uh, in what they are angry about or fighting against, but people who have found their eternal identity in Jesus Christ. People who have come to know the power of his forgiveness that flows from the cross. People who have come to know the power of his word as it takes root in our hearts. People who have come to know the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so this identity is created in Jesus. It's not about your race. It's not about your socioeconomic Uh, standing. It's not about your cultural background. It's not about your politics or a social cause or mission that you are on. It is Jesus. It's why we just sang the songs we did about Jesus, and it's why we live with a very different perspective and even on a very different mission than so many of the present tribes in our world today. Now, As we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, remember at the outset he was expressing thanks to them uh, for things like their their work of love and the steadfastness of of hope and faith that was characterizing them. Remember he he even recounted how in that brief mission uh, time that he and Silvanus and Timothy had with them, they had turned from idols which were very popular in Thessalonia and surrounding culture, and had given themselves to serve the living God. Well, that relationship with the living God was creating this new identity. And so he has, uh, in the last two chapters, he's covered some of the concerns or questions that they had put forward. One of those was, so what happens to our loved ones who have died? Are they going to miss the coming of Christ? And he said emphatically, no, no, they will not. They will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So just rest in this. Your loved ones are well cared for and planned for. And then we looked last week as he he dove a little deeper into the coming of Christ and what that would mean. And we noticed that it will be a time of God's wrath being poured out on those who rebel against him. But it will also be a time where God's people experience the full blessing uh, that God has prepared for them. So again, he's settling hearts. Now, even with all this talk about the end of the world and the coming of Christ, Paul gets very practical, and it's not disconnected (coughs) from those great themes at all, but actually ties back into how should people like us live in this present age, this age of cultural chaos 
and insanity in many ways. The imminent return of our Lord, which reminds us that life is brief and we have to make every day count. How should we live? Well, in some respects, in a very ordinary uh, way. And so I want you to follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's it coming out of the first part of chapter 5 where we were reminded, as one author notes, that we are a people of the day, the coming day of the Lord. So we're also uh, people who belong to the family, if you will. And I want us to think in terms of a family today. And in these first couple of verses, there are a couple of different categories that we need to think of. But the big idea uh, that kind of hangs over these specific instructions is that we, as the people of God, as a local church, are a family. And we should think of ourselves in that particular way. Now, Paul is going to unfold some responsibilities of leaders and then responsibilities of members of a local assembly like this. And so look at verse 12 with me. Notice, and he's using family terms here. He does a couple of times in this passage. We ask you brothers and ladies, you're not excluded from that. All right. It actually is a term that would apply uh, to, to both men and women in the context of a church. But notice what he says that God uh, and reminds us that God has actually appointed leadership for his family. He, respect, he says, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, even before we unpack a couple of thoughts here, I, I want to note what, what many authors and, and pastors and, and teachers have wrestled with and what you yourself uh, probably have wrestled with if you've been a part of the church any time. It, it, it seems uh, at certain, from certain perspectives that there are often two common extremes when it comes to church leadership. One author, uh, commentator that I've been helped by refers to clericalism and anti-clericalism. That those are more formal terms, but clericalism may be, just be understood uh, as an unbiblical view and unhealthy practice of church leadership. It tends to emphasize the formality of it, that the pastor carries all authority, that he should never be questioned or opposed. People are expected to submit and to follow and to defer almost without any question. And you will frequently hear phrases, uh, as I did in my growing up years, uh, like, touch not the Lord's anointed. Um, Inevitably, this kind of church leadership will lead to problems, if not outright abuse. And not only abuse of its power, but in the end of its people. Pastors are neither popes, nor are they princes. That would be an example of clericalism. Then you have the other end of the spectrum, and sometimes it's in reaction to this kind of unbiblical or ungodly church leadership. It's the anti-clericalism. It's very often a reaction uh, against abuses, but not only does every member of the body have equal authority in a system like this, every member uh, reserves the right to do whatever he or she pleases. And it really is more a reflection of the book of Judges. If you remember that Old Testament story, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. And, and so you end up having these, these groups of loosely affiliated people who just kind of come in and, and go out, do whatever they want. And they're hesitant to give anybody any kind of leadership, either because of past abuse they've suffered or fear that they will experience something that they've heard about. And while... Um, while it might feel good for a time, it's not actually the Lord's plan. Because like our biological families, the Lord loves his family and he has clearly appointed some to lead and to exercise authority. And so even in this passage, there is a reminder to us that pastor elders, although Paul doesn't use the term here, but it fits in the larger context, 
pastor elders are actually given by Christ to lead God's flock, to feed God's sheep, to guard God's sheep, and to just shepherd them to God. Pastors function under the authority of Christ, and yet truly with an authority delegated by Christ. One author writes, it is God's will that every local church should enjoy pastoral oversight, but not his will that pastors should dominate everything. They are not meant to monopolize ministries, but rather to multiply them. I thought that was a very helpful summary of pastoral work. So as we look through the specifics that Paul includes here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he highlights three particular responsibilities, and so I want to draw your attention to those. First of all, pastors labor for the family. Paul speaks of those who labor among you, and it's a term that speaks of wearisome, exhausting labor. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 6, the term is applied to hardworking farmers. Paul's using it there to illustrate an important point. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul wrote, Let the elders or pastors who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Because we hold God's word in such high esteem, that's one of the main reasons that we prioritize the ministry of his word. We're in a public setting right now, and in the formal sense, this is the preaching or proclamation of God's word. We normally have an equip class to follow where we would say it's not so much preaching, but it's teaching. But all of that is designed to bring the word of God to life and into the light so that you, as the members of God's family, would understand the word. You feed on the word. You grow by the word. This word is living and powerful, and it is a great gift from the Lord. And so pastors labor specifically in the word for the family. It's not the only area in which we labor. We labor in prayer. We labor in soul care. We labor in a number of ways. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he speaks very personally, For this I toil, or labor, struggling with all his energy, with all God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. So a pastor is called of God to labor for the family. Look at the next phrase in 1 Thessalonians 5 who are over you in the Lord. That term over is translated in 1 Timothy 3 verse 5 as a qualification for pastors, but there we we take a little different nuance out of the Greek and trying to convey that in English. uh, Paul says if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And the term manage and the term that we have here in 1 Thessalonians 5, over you, comes from the same root. If you were able to read wider Greek literature, non-biblical literature, but literature from Paul's day, you would find that this same term is used to speak of officials and superintendents, of village heads or chiefs, landlords and estate managers and guardians of children. And in all, uh, of, all, in all of these notions, the idea of leading and caring seems to be combined. Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonia, there are individuals among you who are called by God not only to work hard and labor for your benefit, but they are called to manage the church. One author says pastoral care is parental care. And that's how Matt and Daniel and I look at you as our family. We don't put ourselves on a pedestal, so please don't you put us on a pedestal either. But we do take this responsibility and stewardship very seriously. We want to give the kind of oversight that will be a blessing to you. We want to lead in ways that brings spiritual health and understanding, encouragement to your soul. We feel very privileged to have this position, and we talk from time to time uh, about the inherent dangers that come with a responsibility and privilege like this. Pastors manage God's family. Number three, as Paul goes on to say, pastors also admonish the family. Would you look at the next phrase? 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. What is this idea of admonishing? Well, again, in the relational context, Paul had actually said back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. He doesn't use the term admonish, but he uses some synonyms that kind of fill out the idea. A pastor's responsibility at the end of the day is to bring God's word to bear upon the life of the church. It's not that Daniel and Matt and I huddle up once a week and say, what ideas do we have that would, that would be important for Gospel Hope to know? What are our priorities for this church? What are our words of wisdom or principles for life? Now, the task that God has called us to and entrusted to us is to open his word and say, God, what are your words of life and wisdom and exhortation and admonishment for gospel hope this week? And sometimes that word of admonishment takes place right here in this service. Sometimes it takes place one-on-one or in small groups. Faithful pastors like faithful church members, will always operate with their Bibles open, as it were. Now, that term admonish means specifically to warn or counsel in terms of someone's behavior. And we live in a a very autonomous culture right now. Nobody wants anybody else telling them what to do. And we think it's a great example of how advanced our society has become that that the individual feels, feels free to express himself or express herself however they should choose. Well, that's a misunderstanding of freedom because true freedom is being able to do what God created me to do or calls me to do. Pastors are called of God to bring the word of God to bear upon your life personally. And sometimes that means warning. Sometimes that means stepping into your life and saying, brother, could I bring something to your attention? Dear sister, would you please hear God's word and know it comes from a heart of love and concern? Sometimes it means counseling. How thankful we are for those of you who Trust us enough to come and say, hey, I've got something I really need your input on. And that's a daunting thing. I frequently think to myself, Lord, please give wisdom and lead and help because this person actually thinks that what I'm about to say is trustworthy. and, And I want it to be. But I marvel a little bit, even as I look back over three decades of pastoral ministry, that people have determined a course of life based on a conversation with someone like me. How could we not keep our Bibles open? How could we not beg for God's wisdom and mercy? So pastors do not speak with an inerrant authority. The word of God is inerrant. That means it has no errors in it. You can fully trust every word that God has given. Pastors don't speak with an inerrant authority, but we do speak with a delegated authority from Christ himself. We're called to labor by Christ. We're called to manage by Christ, and we're called to admonish by Christ. Please know my heart. I do not say this in a self-serving way at all. You should pay close attention to what your pastors speak to you, particularly when we warn you or counsel you. Yes, do it with your Bible open, because there are times where we say things that won't square exactly with Scripture, but I think in Western culture, that, is, um, that would be a, a little rarer perspective, if I can put it that way. I've found through the years that, that many people kind of reserve the right to just take the input or counsel and, and do with it as they will. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. You know, the Bible says to us, as leaders, that there is a day coming when we will give account to God for you. And you should give consideration to what your pastors will say about you when Jesus says to us, tell me about so-and-so as your congregant. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Don't let it scare you away. Let it actually drive you closer, deeper into the word, closer to your pastor's. I'll say a little more about that in just a few moments, but let's press on because there's not only responsibility for leaders, but there's responsibility for members. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 5 and look at the next couple of phrases here. Verse 13, 
esteem them very highly. Or, or sorry, verse 12, respect those who labor among you. Then verse 13, esteem them very highly in love. These things kind of run together just a little bit, but let's parse it out uh, to to make sure we see exactly what the Lord desires for us. Respect at its root idea has the idea of know, to know someone, to know your pastors. It's likely that what Paul has in mind is that the congregation should know or recognize that these leaders have been positioned by God for their care and for the growth of the church. Do you recognize that? The respect that that pastors desire is not that they would be referred to by special titles. Some of you are, are, it's important to you and I would never minimize this. Uh, And you even refer to us with the, the title pastor. Pastor Daniel, Pastor Matt, Pastor Danny. I'm honored by that. I appreciate what's in your heart. I'm far more concerned, though, about the disposition of your heart toward the the imperfect earthly leadership that God has established. I remember years ago having a conversation with a woman who was, frankly, on a very dangerous path because it included sin that she was unwilling to repent of and we were having a discussion and it suddenly struck me in the course of the conversation as she was disagreeing with some things that were being said and she said well pastor danny i just don't agree with you and i thought isn't that ironic that she gives me a title of honor but won't even honor the word that actually is coming straight out of the scripture doing the very kind of thing that paul is here and i thought it's only words i'm not your pastor because you won't submit yourself to the earthly leadership that that Jesus has placed over you. So respect is more than just a title that you might use. It has to do with an attitude of your heart that recognizes God has structured his family in a particular way. Now, look at verse 13. To esteem them very highly in love. That all goes together. Esteem has to do with the regard that you give to an individual. Oh, this is so uncomfortable to preach this in some ways. As I said a moment ago, please, please don't put us on a pedestal because we are, we are not better or more valuable than congregants. We're not a, a special category of super saints. We, we battle our sins like you do. We struggle to trust God like you do. We wonder what the future holds as you do. We're, we're praying as earnestly and sometimes out of, out of fear that God will provide for this building program we're going to officially begin in just a little while. So we, we walk the same path you do, yet we do believe that God has called us and positioned us. I'm thankful that Paul included that little phrase, esteem them very highly, in love, because of their work. And while we want to be faithful in the work that God has called us to do, we want you to value the work that God is doing in our midst. And God is doing a great work through all kinds of of imperfect, flawed, weak, dependent people, and pastors are included in that. Respect, esteem, and love, and finally, work toward peace. This is incumbent upon all of us, but a congregation is called of God to work for peace, and, and it, in the context, it's clear, for the sake of the leaders. I've interacted with a, a I don't know what you would call, wasn't a barista, Maybe that would be an okay term. Whatever. It doesn't really matter. But uh, there was a young gal who was waiting on Kristen and me, and she had a button uh, on her lapel. And I was really intrigued. If memory serves me correct, and it doesn't always. Um, but I think this is close. The button said, question everything, obey nothing. I was like, wow, you're in for a hard, hard life if you really operate by that. I mean, that, that, just, that just leads to you know, anarchy, Lord of the Flies. I mean, what a world to live in. If nobody, if, if, if everybody's questioning everything and nobody is obeying anything, we're pretty close right now, aren't we? God has a different idea and plan for his church. He says, be at peace. What does it mean to be at peace among yourselves? Well, it means that you pursue and develop and protect harmonious relationships one with another. It means, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, you give the benefit of the doubt. You work toward peace among yourselves, and, and, and we're even willing to hold differences of opinions. We live in a world that rapidly is deteriorating into this thing that if you don't agree with me 100%, you're hateful towards me. How, how did we derail 
this train uh, of life and reasonable conversations where we all just recognize, you know, in a, in a room like this, there'll be dozens and dozens of differences, differences of opinion, and that's okay. It's not a room full of hatred just because there might be some disagreement on a number of issues. Well, in God's family, we put the most important things at the center, those things we hold to firmly. You can't be in the faith and deny uh, some basic truths about Jesus Christ. You can be in a faith, but it just wouldn't be the Christian faith if you don't believe Jesus is the one-of-a-kind Son of God who entered this world, lived, died, rose again, ascended on high, that sinners like us might be forgiven for our sins. I mean, those are just basic to the Christian faith. I'm so thankful that God has given us a church that by and large is a church of peace. And I, I, I can say and even commend you for pursuing it, for working out those little differences that arise, one person between another or families between families. You really are the picture of what I believe Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians to pursue. So thank you for that, but don't stop. I alluded to this verse earlier, but now I want to read it in full. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You don't want to make your pastors groan over those petty arguments, just like parents groan sometimes when kids start fighting in the back seat or in the bathroom or in the bedroom or in the front yard. Every parent has had that moment where you just kind of, you melt down while the kids are melting down. You're like, stop it! My girls still tell a story that's painful for me about a time I yelled at them. Because when they were much younger, and it's just that little, you know, back and forth, nya, 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 and I was like, hey! <laughs> my youngest daughter melted into tears. My older daughter retreated, you know, into the depths of her soul. Counseling has helped them. <laughs> I'm also thankful, though, that the Lord includes Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It takes two people, two parties, to achieve this kind of peace. And if one person or one party is intent on remaining at war, peace isn't happening. So as far as it depends on you, that means you make every effort. It also means that sometimes you kind of just cut your losses like it's not happening. And before God, you maintain a pure conscience. God, I, I do believe I've done everything within my power to live peaceably with this person or in this context, but sometimes it's just not gonna happen and that's where you entrust the whole mess to God and, and you continue on the journey of life thanking him that through his son he's made peace with you by the blood of the cross. Some people will never be happy. They will never be happy regardless of what is done, what is said. These are actual complaints made by dissatisfied customers this is unbelievable to me, and I think, oh, bless your heart. The beach was too sandy. We had to clean everything when we returned to our room. No one told us there would be fish in the water. The children were scared. I compared the size, compared the size of our one-bedroom suite to our friend's three-bedroom, and ours was significantly smaller. The brochure stated, no hairdressers at the resort. We're trainee hairdressers, and we think they knew and made us wait longer for service. Do you see how they misread that? Some of you are staring at that going like, what? Yeah, think about that. I love that one. That's my favorite one. And then this. This is pitiful. When we were in Spain, there were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was Spanish. No one told us there would be so many foreigners. I mean, that... That's like so stunning and pitiful and offensive all wrapped into one. Like, I, I have no idea if this is male or female. Uh, could, could have been a group complaint, but I think, man, what universe did you grow up in thinking that the, the axis of the universe ran right through your backyard? Like the whole universe is populated with foreigners. What's with these people? Some people are just never going to be happy. 
So we make every effort to live in peace, yet at the same time we recognize there are people who need an extra little TLC, and so God calls us to care as a family. Now, some people need special attention, and look at verse 14, and even the silly examples that I just gave might actually be more characteristic of of some in this next group that we're gonna look at. And so in verse 14, Paul says, we urge you, brothers, we urge you to do what, Paul? Well, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There's a, there's a group, if you will, right within the church that needs some extra special attention. And we give it to them. We don't just write them off. We don't kick them out. No, and what do we do? Well, we admonish the idle. It's the same word that Paul had just used uh, a moment ago with respect to what pastors are called to do. We warn or counsel in terms of someone's behavior. In the context, it seems like there were some in Thessalonia who were, who were like quitting their jobs and just living on the charity of the church or just saying, well, you know, Jesus is gonna return. My job is not that important. And so Paul is saying, no, tell them. They gotta work. The term that we translate idle, though, is often used in other places to speak more broadly of just disorderly living. And if there are people within our congregation that you see whose lives are not ordered according to the word of God, according to the gospel and his truth, well, they need some admonishment. Secondly, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those who are discouraged or less hopeful or enthusiastic in life. And many of us would sympathize. Some of us would even say, I think I'm in that club right now. These are people who have been weakened by the experiences of life. And there are many experiences in life that will weaken us and take the heart out of us. It could be financial pressures. It could be relationship failures. It could be the loss of health or diminishing physical strength as we age. For these dear ones, there is a deficit of hope, a deficit of enthusiasm, if you will, for living the Christian life. Even as they know the Lord intends, their hearts are faint There is a weakness there. And Paul says that we, as the family, need to encourage them. He doesn't say chide them. He doesn't use the word exhort them at this point. No, he actually wants us to move into their lives in such a way that we alleviate the sorrow and distress that they are feeling and we refill them with a kind of spiritual strength where they will say, well, thank you, this has encouraged me, I will press on. I don't feel as faint of heart as I did prior to this conversation. And brothers and sisters, we need to look for ways to alleviate the the sorrow and distress. Sometimes that can be as as simple and as powerful as just an arm around the shoulders, a hug, a word of encouragement, just to say, I love you. I know this is a hard time for you. I'm praying for you. Better yet, can I pray with you right now? And we need to be wise as well that not everybody who is faint-hearted actually needs a sermon. And, And some of you are more prophetic by nature and so you, you look at another person's suffering as an opportunity to remind them you know, that God sanctifies all their suffering and he's teaching something. They ought to just trust him. And, and it actually has an opposite effect of what you may think it does. Be careful. Be careful when and where you preach. Encourage the faint-hearted. Number three, help the weak. That just means to support them. Hold them firmly as they go through this time of affliction. Something that they have experienced has weakened them. They know that they don't have the necessary strength. It may be that they lack moral courage at the moment. It may be that they've just lost motivation for getting up and being about the business that God has entrusted to them. The Lord Jesus reminded us in Matthew 26, 41, the flesh is weak even though the spirit often is willing He was using that to encourage his disciples to pray. But prayer, our own prayers, in those moments of our weakness are not the only means of receiving strength. Sometimes we receive it from the family of God. The weak, as one author writes, may be those who had no social status or power since they were slaves or because of their economic situation. There could be a variety of reasons as to why a person has been weakened at this moment, but we as the family are called of God to help them. 
Lastly, be patient with them all. And this term that we translate patience uh, really is quite descriptive when you, when you break it down and, and you meditate on it for a little bit. It means suffer long with them. Aren't you thankful that God has not called us into a tribe where it's just the survival of the fittest or we find people who think and operate in life just like us, but God has actually called us into a family where there's great diversity, there's great variety, and in calling us into that family, he also is teaching us to be aware of the suffering and difficulty that others are carrying around us. And he says, you come alongside them, and as you admonish some, as you encourage others, as you help the weak, be patient. Enter into the suffering and go long with them because there are some people who are on a long journey of suffering. So we're never dismissive of it. We're never careless with it. We bear with them in their suffering. Verse 15. There's special attention. There's also strategic intention toward all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. And, and those one another's, this is the fourth in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where the where the Lord through the apostles is always unpacking what it means to love one another, seek to do good to one another. So we think that would apply to the church itself. And then he broadens it to everyone. Now look at the first part of that. Let me state this positively. Leave vengeance to God. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Oh, we live in a day and age where people so much want justice to be done at any cost. And, and if you cross me in the smallest way, then you know, hold on because I, I'll get you back. One group challenging another group. Politics right now is ugly. And our culture knows well this idea of repaying evil for evil. And if we can't actually get what we believe to be a just payment, then, you know, at minimum, we'll just cancel you outright. God is saying it's not yours to reward or punish the evil that you experience. That doesn't mean we would never pursue justice. We should. As imperfect as our court system is here, I'm grateful we have a court system. But what's clear in this situation, as Paul seems to be addressing it, is that the one party who's experienced an evil of some kind is not authorized by God to go repay that evil to another person. It reminds us, doesn't it, of what the Lord revealed to us in another one of his New Testament books, Vengeance is Mine, I Will Repay. It's God's. That responsibility lies specifically in the hands of Christ. And earlier, just a few verses above this, we were looking at the fact that when Christ returns as the judge of the world, he will bring God's wrath with him. And part of what God's wrath includes is a just and righteous repayment, outpouring of his righteous anger on evildoers. I love the words of 1 Peter 2. The Apostle Peter wrote also to the first century church, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter goes on to say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter takes us right back to the foot of the cross, even in the midst of suffering great evils, great injustices. As the people of God, it's not that we're oblivious to injustice or careless with regard to it, but we, we recognize that our God is the ultimate arbiter of justice and that Jesus himself, who is the judge, who will return for a season in his life when he had reason to take, to unsheathe the sword of justice and, and bring it to bear against those who perpetrated the greatest evil against him, closed his mouth, suffered 
horrific things and as he did, entrusted himself to his God and Father who judges justly. And so can we. God's justice may be slow in coming, but it will come. Now, look at the last part. Seek to do good. Pursue what is good. First to one another, and as I noted a moment ago, to the body of Christ. And then Paul goes beyond that and says, to everyone. Beloved, we're not a tribe in the sense of tribalism, as I spoke at the very outset. We're a family. And, and God has, has divided his one family into thousands upon thousands of little local family gatherings like this. And through Christ, uh, he has given us the gift of eternal life, yes, but he's also uh, filled us with the Holy Spirit. And he's positioned us to live in such a way with reference to him, with reference to fellow believers, our brothers and sisters here, but also with reference to the world itself that would be a marked difference. In the coming weeks, we're going to have opportunities to speak to people about Jesus, to share the gospel. And part of, part of what lends credibility to this, going all the way back to the beginning of the service, and some of you weren't here yet, so you missed this, but Andrew read a portion from John 17 where Jesus is praying specifically for the unity of his church. And, and in that same context, the Lord powerfully says, acknowledges that it is by that unity that the world will know that God the Father has sent God the Son. So you can't divorce the truth of the gospel message from the way you and I live with reference to one another and even with reference to the community. What an amazing thought that God will use our ordinary living day in and day out to establish his gospel. Very quickly, now what? So what do we do with this? Well, a basic question is, are you part of God's family? Are you in the faith, as we sometimes say? And by that I mean, have, have you turned from your sin to Jesus? Have you called upon him for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life? You say, Danny, I don't know if I've done that. We'll do it right now, just quietly, from your heart, to God. Maybe you sense that the Spirit of God is, is speaking to you. He's convinced you that you actually are sinful in ways that you need to turn from and repent of toward the sin, and, and then turn toward God. Do it right now. Are you part of God's family? God's not looking to form another tribe that's known for fighting for even our Christian rights or for championing some kind of trendy Christian cause. He's looking to establish a kingdom and a family, and he wants to include you. Second thought, are you living in healthy relationship with the family? Are you a lone ranger? Jesus didn't die and shed his blood to make you a lone ranger. You say, but I love my independence. Well, get over yourself. Humble yourself. Follow the teaching and commands of God. Get connected to the family. And specifically, as this passage goes, are you respecting your leaders? Are you receiving the warning and admonishment, not just from leaders, but even fellow brothers? Maybe some of you are actually idle at this moment in the way that 1 Thessalonians 5 mentioned, and praise God if there's someone who loves you enough to step into your world and go, can I tell you something? I have great concern for you. And then finally, are you planning to do good in the next two weeks? Now, beyond that for sure, but Matt ran through several announcements about some of the things that are right around the corner for us. And we recognize that your life is not limited to the calendar of Gospel Hope Church, but we actually do hope and pray that that. Your church family here is really close to the center. Jesus is the center. We'll just concede that. Someone will come up afterwards and correct me for that. Jesus is the center of our lives. Yes, yes, fully agree. But Jesus, if Jesus is the center, then doesn't it make sense that his family is also at the center? So, look at the calendar. Some of you have work responsibilities and family and travel and other things, but we, we need you to be part of it. Those t-shirts out back are designed to be conversation starters. So whether we're cleaning up trash after the big Riverton parade, that's Monday night, July 3rd, yes, a week, or uh, taking a, a turn at the tent during Riverton Town Days in the park, because we'll be out there all day July 4th, and thousands of people come by. 
And yeah, they're there more for the carnival or you know, the, the music, that, that the concert that goes pretty much all day, the vendors who are there, and um, there's a lot of great stuff. But thousands of them walk right by, and, and if you've never been there before, it, I mean, it's just great conversation that happens. And sometimes it's a little hostile. We have people say unkind things, but we also have people who stop by and they want to know more. And pretty much every year we've had people come by who really are hungry or searching. And you end up in one of these really wonderful moments. Will you be there? Now, I I say that and I think, oh, Lord, what if all 125 people decide to come to the tent that day? That won't work, so we'll kick you out and make you go elsewhere. But (laughs) But you don't have to leave the park. You can still walk around and engage with people. The opportunities to do good in these next couple of weeks will be many. What a savior we have and what a gospel we have. It really is good news. We're not asking people to join some social justice effort or political party. Not asking them to jump on a trendy cultural bandwagon. We're asking them to come engage with the living God and, and be a part of what he is doing. Would you bow your heads with me, please? There's a lot here, really, to chew on. What particular piece of this passage stands out to you? What do you sense the Holy Spirit is impressing on your heart right now? It may be a very specific step that you need to take with reference to a sin, to leave it, forsake it, to confess it to God and be done with it. Maybe there's another individual that you need to return to and say, can we find a place of peace? Maybe it's engagement, pursuing good for outsiders, those who aren't a part of the family but you've been praying for and maybe you've just grown a little weary in the effort to share the gospel or to show them love. Maybe, maybe this is the week that you invite them to lunch again. Just get caught up. How are they doing? How can you pray for them? How can you serve them? Pursue good. Beloved, as we meditate on this passage, there are probably a hundred things that the Lord would have us to take out of it, but what's one thing that you can take out of it right now? Father, seal to our hearts your words and yours alone. And if there are ideas or notions that have simply originated in my heart that were not born out of your word and the work of the Spirit, then let them just die away fade into oblivion as quickly as possible. But, oh, Lord, let your word remain and do all its powerful, life-giving, life-changing, saving work. Just don't leave us the same. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.